Now, I want to talk to believers this morning because I believe that there are three common doors that if we're not careful, believers regularly open up to the enemy and allow him access into their lives. You mean believers that we can open doors for the enemy to come in? Absolutely. And door number one that I want to talk to you about this morning as we talk about these three open doors to the devil, door number one is the words that we speak. Now, now I am absolutely convinced, and I believe I'm safe in saying this, that most believers still do not understand or comprehend the power of their words. Let me tell you something, words carry power. Words either open doors to the enemy and he can come in to steal, kill, and destroy, or words open up doors for God to come in and bring life and life abundant. The Bible even says that the worlds were framed by the word of God. You go back and read Genesis chapter 1 over and over. You heard it said, and God said, and God said, and God said. Everything that is was spoken into existence by the word of God. Words have power. Listen to what the Bible says in Proverbs 6 and 2. It says that you are snared, you are trapped by the words of your mouth. You are taken by the words of your mouth. Now what he's talking about here is when we make vows or when we make promises or we obligate ourselves to someone or to do something only later to regret it but now our words have trapped us and we can't get out of it. Anybody ever been there? And he said we are snared by the words of our mouth. We're taken by the words of our mouth in Proverbs chapter 18 verses 20 and 21. We looked at this passage not long ago. It says that a man's stomach shall be satisfied from the fruit of his mouth. The fruit of his mouth is not food, it's words. And he said from the produce of his lips, again his words, he shall be filled. In other words, you're not filled and you're not satisfied by what goes into your mouth. You are filled and satisfied by what comes out of your mouth. And that's why he said that death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. Ladies and gentlemen, we can open doors to the enemy by the words that we speak. That's why we have got to speak words of life. That's why we've got to speak words that encourage and build up other people. I recognized it. It, 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 this became a reality to me yesterday when we were out there demolishing this piece of property. I thought it took a whole lot longer to build that thing up than it did to tear it down. You can tear something down really quickly with your words that it took years to build up. Amen? But we need to be building up, encouraging one another, speaking words of life. James probably gives us the most extensive passage of Scripture as it relates to the power of our words. Listen to what he said. He said, we all make many mistakes. Somebody say amen to that. We all make many mistakes. None of us in this room here today are perfect. But he said, those who control their tongues. Now get this, this blows me away. He said, those who control their tongues can also control themselves in every other way. 
In other words, he's saying here that the most powerful member of our body is our tongues. And he said that if a person can get their tongue under control, if a person can get their words under control, they have no problem getting the rest of their life in order and getting the rest of their life under control. And then he goes on and he says this. He said, we can make a large horse turn around and go wherever we want by means of a small bit in its mouth. He's talking about how the power or the tongue has power to direct our lives. He said, a tiny rudder makes a huge ship turn wherever the pilot wants it to go. And don't miss this next statement. Even though the winds are strong, do you know what it will be that gets you through the storms in life? Do you know what it'll be that get you through your difficulties in life? It's when you learn how to speak words of life. Even in the midst of that storm, even when the winds are against you, but you're still speaking the word of God. You're still speaking words of life. You see the disciples, when they got into a storm and Jesus was in the boat and Jesus wasn't worried about the storm. He was up in the bow of the boat asleep. And when they got into the storm, what did the disciples say? They said, Lord, don't you even care? That we perish, they began to doubt the love of God. They began to doubt that God cared for them. But what did Jesus say in the middle of that storm? He said, peace be still. He spoke life. And the way to get through storms and difficulty in life, speak life. Even in the midst of adversity. I know it's difficult to do. I know we cannot do it in and of ourselves. But with divine help, this can happen. It has the power to direct. But then notice what he says. He said, so also the tongue is a small thing. But what enormous damage it can do. Come on, somebody help me preach. I need some help this morning. Now he's talking about not only does it have the power to direct. He says it also has the power to destroy. And he said it's a tiny spark. Or, or a tiny spark, he said, can set a great forest on fire. It just, it just takes one wrong word to create a huge fire. And then notice what he says. He said the tongue is a flame of fire. Now here's what he's talking about. He's talking about an unredeemed tongue. He's talking about an unsanctified tongue. He's talking about a tongue that is still unredeemed. A tongue that is still unsanctified here and he says that a tongue is is a flame of fire it is full of wickedness that can ruin your whole life it can turn the entire course of your life into a blazing flame of destruction for look at this it is set on fire by hell itself Where did that fire come from? It came from hell itself. That's why the tongue needs to be sanctified. That's why the tongue needs to be redeemed. That's why the tongue needs to be brought under the power and control of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Because notice what he says. People can tame all kinds of animals and birds and reptiles and fish. Go to SeaWorld. They can tame Shamu. But no man can tame the tongue, he says. No one can tame the tongue. It is an uncontrollable evil, full of deadly poison. This is something we cannot do in and of ourselves. This is not something that willpower is going to take care of. 
This is something we need divine help from God to get control of the words that we speak. Now listen to what James said in James chapter 1 verse 26. He says, if anyone among you thinks he's religious. Now I'm going to stop preaching and go into meddling now. Because there's a lot of folks that think they're religious by the deeds that they do. I go to church. I pay my tithe. I go to Sunday school. I'm in a small group. I serve. So therefore, I'm religious. He said, if any of you think that you are religious, but notice what he says, and does not bridle his tongue. And does not bridle her tongue. Let's make sure. Okay, it's not just the men he's talking to here. He's talking to all of us. He said, that person is fooling themselves. They are deceiving their own heart. And then notice what he said. Now listen, I didn't say this, so don't get mad at me. This is James, the brother of Jesus that wrote this book. All right? So if you want to get mad at James, then that's fine. Get mad at James. But don't get mad at me because here's what he said. He said, that person's religion is useless. That means we can go to church. We can put on a front that makes people believe that we're a really religious person. That we have this deep relationship with God by coming to church. We can, we can serve. We can teach. We, we can do all kind of things. But he said sooner or later the thing that people are going to recognize when, when it comes to whether or not your religion is pure or not is the words that you speak. It's your words that's going to eventually out you. That's what he's saying. Listen to me, Summerton. This is so important because we can open doors to the enemy. We can do it individually. We can do it in our marriage. We can even do it here in our church if we're not careful with the words that we speak. Open doors for the enemy to come in to steal, kill, and destroy. I say no to that. I say we speak words of life. Amen. So that we're opening doors to the presence of the Holy Spirit to come in and bring life and life abundant. Amen. Door number one, the words we speak. Door number two, the lies we believe. And listen, I didn't say the lies we hear. Lies are like temptation. You know, we can pray that God will take temptation away from us. Temptation is just something we're all going to face at some point in time. The Bible does say that when we're tempted, let no man say he's tempted of God. God doesn't tempt us, but he does allow us to be tempted. It's one of those means of growth in our lives. But we're all going to be tempted. We have to make a decision whether we're going to give in to the temptation or not. And we have that choice. There's no such thing as the devil made me do it. The devil never made you do anything. He may have tempted you and then you made the decision whether you're going to give in to the temptation or not. And it's the same way with lies. You're going to hear lies. I'm just telling you like it is. You're, you're going to hear lies, but it's your choice whether or not you're going to believe those lies. I told you, I need you to help me preach this morning. <laughs> but here's my question. How do you know if something is a lie if you don't know what the truth is? And this is why Jesus said, you shall know the truth, 
and the truth shall make you free. Because if you don't know what the truth is, you will not know when you are being deceived by the enemy. The lies that we believe. A lie can only become a stronghold in your life when you believe it. Did you hear me? A stronghold, let me just tell you what a stronghold is. A stronghold is a lie that you believe is the truth. That's what a stronghold is. But truth breaks those strongholds in our lives. Breaks them. When we hear truth and we accept the truth and we live the truth, it breaks those strongholds in our lives. And listen, the devil's going to, he's going to come with all kinds of lies. Listen to what the Bible says in John 8, There is no truth in him. Do you understand that? In other words, you don't ever have to worry about saying, boy, the devil told me the truth on that one. No, he didn't. He never tells the truth. He says there's no truth in him. And even if he does tell you something that sounds like a truth, he's twisted it to make it sound like the truth or he's taken the truth out of context. So he said there is no truth in him when he lies. Look at this. It is consistent with his character. Now let me tell you who Jesus is talking to when he says this. He's talking to Pharisees. People who supposedly believed in God. This is the passage of scripture where he says to these these Jews, talking to them about freedom, the Jews that had believed on them. And they said, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been in bondage. You see, they thought they were free because of who their daddy or granddaddy or great-granddaddy was. And Jesus said to them, listen, you're not free because of who your biological father is. And he said that if, if, if God were your father, then you would not be rejecting the truth. You're rejecting me. Your father, Abraham, did not reject me. Even though he did not know me, he believed in me. Even before I ever appeared, he believed that I am. And he said, so you're not acting like your father, Abraham, who did believe in me. He said, let me tell you who you're acting like. You're acting like your father, the devil, because you're rejecting truth. And he said, there's no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. That's the way he's operated since the beginning of time. Look at it, Genesis chapter 3. You know the story. Had a little girl in my church in Atlanta. I may have told you this story. Had a little girl in my church in Atlanta. Her name was Alamadade. She was from Nigeria. And when Alamadade was five years old, well, first of all, when they started coming to our church, she was about one and a half, two years old. And, and, and her mama told her, she said, now, honey, today we're going to God's house. And so they come to church. After church, they come into our guest reception. And she walks over to me. And she starts pulling me on the coattail, and she says, hey, God. Hey, God, can I have some of that candy over there? She thought it was my house and that I was God. And she would sit by me every Sunday, unless she didn't like what I was going to preach about. And she would always ask me, she would say, so, Pastor, what are you going to talk about today? And one Sunday I told her, I said, well, today we're going to talk about the worst, greatest story that's ever been told. We're going to talk about Adam and Eve, you know, when they were told not to eat the fruit off the tree, and, uh, and they did it anyway. They disobeyed. And, and she looked at me, and she said, again? <laughs> I'm going to children's church. 
This is the worst, greatest story ever told. It says that the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. That is, he was more deceptive. And he said to the woman, now look at this. you got to catch this because he's sly. He said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? Now, is that what God said? No, here's what God said. God said you cannot eat of every tree, or you can eat of every tree but one. So he, he, he comes and says, did God really say to you that you could not eat of every tree in the garden? And, and, and she evidently, she got the truth right because she said to the, to the serpent, she said, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden... She said, God has said, you shall not, not eat it, nor shall you touch it. Now, God never told them they couldn't touch it. That was probably Adam that told his wife that. He just wanted her to stay as far away from that tree as possible. <laughs> said, you shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. So she knew the truth, right? She knew exactly what God had said. God didn't say you could not eat of any of the trees. He said you can eat of all of those trees. And you've heard me say it before. Let's just say there's 10,000 trees. They can eat from 9,999 of them. The only one God said you can't eat from is the tree in the middle, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But Satan made it appear, you see, he's holding out on you. He knows there's something special about that tree that's different from all the other trees. In the garden. And the serpent said to her, Woman, you're not gonna die. Point blank lie. You're not gonna die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And what they do, they fell for the lie, they ate from the tree, and then in verse 7, notice what happened. Their eyes were opened, but I guarantee you, it wasn't what they were expecting. Because their eyes were open and they knew they were naked. You see, that's what the enemy never told them. He never said as a result of this decision, you're going to feel all kinds of guilt and shame. He never told them that because of this decision that you're about to make, that a curse is going to come upon you. Never told them all of that. They were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. So, so what did they do? They tried to hide. In other words, they go into bondage because of a lie that they believed and acted upon that became a stronghold in their life. Door number one, the words we speak. Door number two, the lies we believe. And then door number three, the sins that we continue. Yeah, I'm going there. The sins that we continue. Listen to what John tells us in John chapter 1, verse 3. He said, those who sin are opposed to the law of God. For sin opposes the law of God. So he's saying that sin opposes God's word. That's what he's saying. And then he says, you know that Jesus came to take away sins. For there is no sin in him. Now a better word there would be there is no iniquity in him. I'm going to talk to you in a couple of weeks. I'm going to talk to you about breaking generational iniquities 
in your families. You've heard it as generational curses. I don't like the word curses. I like the word iniquity because I think it better describes what it really is. And I'm going to talk to you about the difference between iniquity and sin. And we're going to break some generational iniquity in some people's families and in some people's lives with the truth of God's word. But notice, there is no sin in him. And because it's not in him, it doesn't come out of him. Amen. And then in verse 6 it says, so if we continue. Here, here's the thing, you got to hear this. So if we continue to live in him. This is why it's so important that we stay connected to him. That we live continually in him. He said, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. He said, so if we continue to live in him, we won't sin either. Now, now listen, he's not saying that you would be perfect. He's not saying that you might not make a mistake from time to time. He's just saying that sin is not a stronghold in your life. It's not something you continue in. It's not a habit that you are in doing. And then he says, if we continue to live in him, we won't sin either. But those, now, now look at this. Again, I didn't say this. John says this. He says, but those who keep on sinning have never known him. Or understood who he is. We need to hear the truth of God's word here this morning. Because if you come to Christ and you're remorseful for your sins. And you say I'm sorry for my sins. But then you don't repent and you don't turn away from your sin. And you still continue in your sin. The Bible says if you do, you do not know him. You do not understand who he is. And you heard the scripture we said a few weeks ago. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because when you come to know him, you hate sin. You want nothing to do with sin. You do everything you can to avoid sin. Rather than trying to accommodate your sin. And then notice what he says in verse 7. Dear children, don't let anyone deceive you. In other words, this is another one of those lies of the devil. You're saved by grace. You're under grace. You can do whatever you want to now. You're free to sin. No, he didn't set you free from sin to just do whatever you want to do. He set you free so that you could become who it is that he's created you to be. So that you can act and react according to the person that he created you to be. He brought you out of to bring you into. Hallelujah. He said, don't let anybody deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it's because they're righteous. Even as Christ is righteous. If you say you're righteous, live righteous. And then he says this, but when people keep on sinning, it shows they belong to the devil. You're acting like your father, the devil, who has been sinning since the beginning of time. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil in our lives. Hallelujah. Paul said it like this in Romans 6. He said, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. So you are either a slave to sin or you are a slave to righteousness. What is it that has control in your life? 
our continual sin opens the door that gives the enemy access. You've got to shut the door. You've got to fill your life with the Spirit of God and with the truth of God's Word. I've had people ask me, Pastor, when they get saved, I've asked, I've asked people, I've asked, Pastor, what do I need? Do I need deliverance or do I need discipleship? What do I need? Jack Hayford, who, by the way, I think is probably the most balanced teacher when it comes to this subject. Of anybody that I know, Jack Hayford said that he, he would get asked that question, what do we need, deliverance or discipleship? And he said, my answer is always yes. <laughs> he said, we need deliverance because you can't disciple a demon. But he said, we need discipleship because you can't, dis- or because you can't cast out the flesh. That makes sense, doesn't it? You cannot cast out the flesh, neither can you disciple a demon. So the demon's got to go, and the flesh has got to be disciplined or discipled. I think that's what Jesus was talking about here in Matthew chapter 12. When he said, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. He's a disembodied spirit looking for a house to live in, and he finds none. But then notice what happens. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, notice, this spirit, this unclean spirit, finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Notice, it's swept, it's put in order, but the issue is, it's empty. It's empty. Failed to be filled. And then it says that this unclean spirit goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. You see, this is how important it is that once you have been delivered, that you be discipled. That you fill your life with God's spirit and with God's truth. So that when those things do come back, trying to gain access into your life, here's what they find. They find a sign that says, no vacancy, full of a Holy Spirit and truth. Amen. No access in this life. But listen, everything I've talked to you about today, the words we speak, the lies we believe, the sins that we continue, none of us can shut those doors in and of ourselves. We need divine help. And that's what Jesus was saying here as the musicians come. That's what Jesus is saying here in John 8, the passage that we just keep coming back to. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in me. He said it like this in another place, if you abide in me and my word abides in you. But he said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. It's not what makes us disciples. It's the fruit of discipleship. And then he says, and you shall know the truth. And the truth shall make you free. And then he goes on because it says, they answered him and said, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been in bondage to anyone. 
Oh, yes, they had. Their whole life had been in bondage. Come on. So how can you say we will be made free? And Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. It's that simple. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. He's talking to us here about the difference between a slave and a son. A slave can be bought and sold at any point in time, but a son remains in the house forever. And here's what he was saying to those people. He said, you're not living like sons of God. You're living like slaves to sin. And you're thinking that it's who, it's your lineage, your heritage, because you were sons or daughters of Abraham. That that's what makes you free. But here's what Jesus said to them. If the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. In other words, it's not your biological father. It's your spiritual father. He's the one who sets you free indeed. Indeed. And then Paul, in Romans 7, we talked about his struggle. And this is the conclusion that he came to. He said, oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that's dominated by sin? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the answer today, folks.